somewhere near you, you should find a white envelope. Uh, you will know, many of you anyway, that we are approaching the last days of uh, Steve Wilby's employment with us as Verger. Rosemary, you may like to close your ears at this point, because I'm going to be nice to him. Um, you'll see uh, those envelopes in your pews. Uh, they hopefully uh, tell you what their purpose is. They are a gift for his uh, retirement. Uh, please do return them over the next couple of weeks. Uh, you can use the church office pigeonhole or put them in the giving bag, whatever it may be. Um, uh, cash, that's fine. We'll know what they're for because they're in the envelope. And if you want to use a cheque, that's fine. Uh, you won't be able to gift aid that cheque, I should tell you, uh, because uh, it's for a particular individual. Uh, we'll present uh, Steve with something. Um, this is when it would be really useful if those back doors were closed, Mike. Thank you. Or send him away. Send him away. Yes, yeah, send him into the office. That's it, yeah. Send him into the office. Yeah, go on. My, my, Mike, our church warns us from going, go, go, off you go, off you go. Um, uh, we, we have some ideas of what we will uh, do by way of a gift, um, but uh, those will be presented on the 16th of October. We have a harvest event here, a meal there'll be entertainment, we'll be saying farewell to Steve, and it's just an excuse to, to get together. Do I do a plug for that at the same time, or have you got that? All right, uh, uh, tickets, £5. Uh, Mike's got the tickets, I think, £5 per adult. There's something about it in your news sheet. Uh, kids free, but they still need a ticket. Um, but the question of saying goodbye to Steve raises the question of what happens after that. Um, well, you'll realise, I guess, that the employment of a full-time verger is something very few churches can afford. Um, at least until next summer, we'd like to cover Steve's work by paying for cleaning, but to have other work covered by volunteers, which is what happens in most churches. And it would be great to think that we, together, can look after what is our church building, and indeed buildings. Uh, I guess perhaps worth saying, there are, I'm beginning to note people making assumptions that, oh, the office can just fill in this, or uh, the pastoral assistants can just fill in this. Uh, if they had spare time, I would be filling it for them. Um, the staff are very much full-time employed. They don't have spare capacity. They're working in youth and outreach and administration, so we do really need volunteers. There's a great deal to do, uh, and you, if you've got particular ambitions for particular things, then do have a word. But there are a few bigger areas where we would really like to see something specific. They needn't be time-consuming, because they can be divided between people. So, for example, we would love it if there was a team covering the work of Sunday vergering, getting here a bit early, arriving, uh, um, staying on a bit later, um, flicking the lights on and off to tell the remains of the evening congregation it's time to go home now. Um, it would be great to have four people from this congregation um, so that we have four from the morning as well and we can split the work morning and evening. Or one of the most useful jobs you might consider is simply being here for some hours in a weekday, answering the door, putting calls through, moving kit for groups that need it, managing keys for those who hire the hall. Uh, we have one of our members, Paul Beverly, who does that sometimes, and when he comes in, he brings uh, a laptop and does his own work when that's not needed, and it's, it is one of those uh, great times when you can be away from your own phone and get on with whatever you may care about 
when you're not actually uh, engaged. But that's a, a kind of thing that's useful if someone can offer for a morning or an afternoon uh, or two, perhaps, in a week. Now, there are sign-up sheets at the back, and I know how nervous people are of those. We're all afraid that we might accidentally have signed up for too much. So all it means if you put your name down is please talk to me further about this. And don't be put off if you go to those sheets and you see that already someone's put their name in for something. Most of the things that need doing need a few people, so do just add your name. And it is a time when I really want every person to hear this notice as for them. It's not a time to say, this is great that it's happening, but I can't because I'm too old, or I'm too young, or I'm only here for a year, or the dog needs walking, um, whatever it may be, um, just so that no one uh, gets to have an excuse. I will myself in my own time be cleaning toilets, um, just so that I can say, if I've done that, then you can do that. Um, Not that particular thing, because... Uh, I actually like... Yes, I'll have done that by then. Yes, thank you. (laughs) Exactly. And we are very grateful for those who've already offered to clean kitchens and to take responsibility for gardening. So fill those in as appropriate, but do please, when you collect your tea and coffee at the end of our time together, do please have a look at those sign-up sheets. They're also on the tables uh, and see if there's something there that's appropriate for you. If you can think of a job that you've always wanted to do in the life of a church, but you've just never had the opportunity, and it's not one of those listed, like, I've always wanted to clean the brass. You have no idea how much time Steve spends cleaning the brass. He makes a jolly good job of it, too. Um, So if that's an ambition of yours, then, you know, put that down and we'll make something like that happen. I'll stop now. Thank you. Great stuff. (laughs) Thank you very much. Uh, That's one way in which we can contribute to what goes on here at Trinity. Another way is by uh, coughing up and uh, giving our money. (laughs) Some of you will uh, be doing that indirectly through uh, bank accounts, of course, and uh, and standing orders. That's great. Some of you will be visitors, and, of course, we don't press you for uh, for any money at all. But if uh, this is the way you choose to give, well, here's an opportunity. Thank you. thanks and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to attend to your word. And we ask that it may be out of glad gratitude for your word and all it means to us, 
that we make uh, our offerings week by week, month by month, whether it's here or through banks or whatever it may be, so that the work of God in Christ may go forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, do please be finding Luke chapter 14. I have to say, as I've listened to this in the past, I've always taken a slight sense of glee at this point, if I've been in your situation, listening to the preacher. Because I thought to myself, well, there's really only two ways you can go in this. Either this is about who you invite to dinner, or it isn't. And if it is about who you invite to dinner, well, that's all right, that's fine. He can witter on for 20 minutes, but it's really just one point, so it'll only take, you know, it won't be very long. Or if it isn't about who to invite to dinner, he's going to have to do a lot of wriggling to make clear that it isn't really about the point of of who to invite to dinner, because it clearly is about who to invite to dinner. So it's both about dinner and not about dinner. How do you know who you are deep inside. Uh, Where do you get your sense of value from? It might be because you are a fashion plate. You are a fashion icon. I can see so many of you as I look out uh, from here. It may... Uh, We have someone in our family who who just always wears the absolute... Uh, latest stuff that's uh, on offer, and they could be uh, a kind of Abercrombie and Fitch model. Uh, But that's not us. However, um, yesterday, yesterday, I decided it really was about time I went and replaced my trainers. And um, uh, I I, I took an old pair of trainers. I've had a knee injury for a while, and I've not really been able to run. And um, I, I went and I, I looked at this wall of trainers and I was horrified because I wanted something that was mostly white with a discreet stripe of grey or, or maybe just a little bit of blue if I really wanted to go hog wild. And this was what was on offer. <laughs> or I could have had bright pink, um, bright yellow or bright green. Um, but... These were the ones that worked best for me, and I just had to put up with the fact that I was going to walk out wearing bright red. They don't go with anything else I run in. It's re- I'm going to have to buy a whole new outfit to go running. But I will at least look cool if I do the park run. Uh, everyone will be in envy of me because I'm wearing A6 GT1000s. And it's just, that's obviously going to be my deep internal sense of value on a Saturday morning. I wonder what it is uh, for you. What is it that you get your sense of value from? For those who would have been listening to Jesus' story, they belong, we forget sometimes, that these are stories set in the Middle East. That's the Middle East. It's an Eastern culture, which means that they're much more likely to get their sense of value from issues around honour and shame. Uh, We are 
very much down on being showy. Uh, it's, it, it's really not quite appropriate to be wearing bright red trainers up here. It's a bit ostentatious, and we're down on that. But the East is a public culture. In the days of Jesus, home was just where you lay your head. There was no... You didn't have wardrobes of, of clothes to wear at home. You didn't have gadgets at home. You would have uh, derived your sense of status from what you were doing, what you were looking like, who was looking at you once you walked out of your front door. Your status is something that everyone would know about. And it's not just about uh, things. It's also about behavior. One of the areas that was really important in Jesus' day that we, again, have lost because we so emphasize emphasize things. One of the things that was really important in Jesus' day was the question of speech. It was um, a bit like you can in English. Uh, Hebrew was a language in which you could uh, have lots of fun with puns and you could have wordplay and speech games. And one of the things that mattered was being cleverer than the other guy in the speech games. The status depended on, yes, your stuff as you walked out, It depended on your capacity to to play games with other people. It depended on relationships. It depended on a kind of unseen ladder. Who was above you on the ladder and who was below you. The people above you were people you depended upon. The people below you were the people who depended on you. And uh, one of the things that is still the case in many parts of the East, is that if you gave someone a gift, it was just a kind of, there was, there was none of the notion of, of grace that we have about a gift. If someone gives you a gift, it was because they were signaling to you within the relationship you had with them uh, that actually what they wanted was for you to give them something back, and in, the, in that way you would exchange codes about who was more important. So if I took these enormously expensive, but with a discount, trainers, and and gave them to someone else here with remarkably small feet, and said, here, these are for you, in that culture, it would be because I expected uh, something uh, something of value back. And what I would be looking for is an indication from them that by giving me something back of more value, I was up the ladder from them. It was the culture of gift giving across the Middle East, but also in the Roman Empire and across cultures in part of the East today. Status depends on all kinds of subtleties that we don't normally appreciate, but they're going on in this story. So let's begin with uh, verses 1 to 6. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Well, who are the Pharisees? Um, uh, Our Sunday school picture of Pharisees is probably that they were the bad guys. 
We know that there was a good tax collector went to pray and a bad Pharisee, so the Pharisees are the bad guys. But what were the Pharisees? The Pharisees weren't religious professionals in any sense. They were mostly tradespeople. They were simply particular about matters of faith and religion because they were sure that if you kept the law more precisely than most of the people around you, and actually worked to help them to keep the Jewish law more precisely than the generations before them. God would come and do the great things for Israel he'd promised, but hadn't actually happened yet. And there were three really, really important rules from among uh, the kind of, the big ones, if you like. Uh, They were all about the line that God drew around his people. The first was circumcision. The second was the keeping of the Sabbath as a time when you not only did no work, but you kind of, you rested ostentatiously. Look at me not doing any work. And the third was the business of who you ate with. You were not allowed to eat with Gentiles, that was obvious, so you made sure that Gentiles didn't come anywhere near you on the Sabbath, uh, sorry, uh, uh, at any point, but you certainly never ate with them Uh, and all of these things reinforced. So on the Sabbath day, you'd be particularly careful to keep away from Gentiles and from people who were unclean. And that would include most people who'd got some kind of illness, disease, might be catching. They didn't quite know whether things were catching. So this story is about uh, two of the rules. One is about the Sabbath, and the other one is about eating. At the meal... Jesus uh, heals this man. He asks a couple of questions, but he heals this man of dropsy, and he asks the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? God, he knows, wants to do good whatever the day of the week might be. Now, one of the things that's not obvious to us Uh, for two reasons, is that there's a speech game going on. Um, Dropsy. Um, I I was just curious. Uh, Let me just ask this. I'm not going to ask you to tell me or to tell everyone else, but how many people actually know what dropsy is? Okay, two, three, four. Okay, I was just curious. I, I, I thought I'd better ask. Dropsy is not a disease. It's a collection of symptoms that could be caused by a number of uh, diseases. It's just, it's just what's called an edema. And it means, or would have meant in Jesus' day, that um, your body was filling up with water on the inside, that you were suffering from some condition that meant your body was not discharging the water, and ironically, you were thirsty all the time. So, the speech game involved is the story that Jesus tells in verse 5. If one of you has a son uh, or an ox, it might be a donkey or an ox, that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. This is not the first time. In verse 4, also, they remained silent. So what Jesus is saying is, look, you've got a situation in which a man has fallen into a well. And the law, you're saying, allows you to pull him out. Here's a man 
the well has fallen into the man. But you can't pull him out. You can't pull the water out. Man falls into the well, you can pull it out. Well falls into the man, can't pull him out. He's playing. He's saying, gotcha. I'm going to show you that you are not the masters of the law in the way you think. He's simply being very clever to make the point that they are not. You'll rescue an animal, but not a man. He makes two inquiries. Is it lawful to heal? But they remained silent. Then he asked them, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. Silence means Jesus has won. Because in the game of, game of speech, now I've got Irish relatives and they would tell you all about this. They understand speech games. It's part of the culture of Ireland is, is speech games. Jesus would win. Jesus is at the home of a prominent Pharisee, but when he shuts up the Pharisees, he comes out as the prominent one. Jesus is showing that they are blind and foolish about details, the things we already know about Pharisees. But the point, in Luke particularly, and Luke is recording this story here, is that there's a great reversal going on. Jesus ends the story more prominent than the Pharisee. They lose face, he gains face. Think of the stories, or the the prophecy he chose to use in Luke 4, the Nazareth Manifesto, when he goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown, and reads from Isaiah. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to claim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed. Going backwards, and it, it, whatever the situation is, I'm going to give you the reverse. Let's go on to uh, the second story, verses 7 to 11. Uh, he notices how the guests pick the places of honour, and he tells a story about uh, a wedding feast. I spoke to a friend of mine this afternoon. Uh, his name's, uh, well, let's, let's call him Angus, uh, because that's his name. Um, uh, and uh, he's getting married uh, next uh, year. Now, uh, I, I've been told to save the date, so I daily await an invitation. Um, but let's assume that I get invited to the reception, and I see how everyone behaves. Well, you've read the story. What's uh, supposed to happen at this wedding feast? Well, Jesus looks, sounds like he's clear. All the guests should, should look, in, look into the room, see where the top table is, because there's always a top table, isn't there, at a, at a wedding do? And they should walk straight past the seating plan and all go into a scrum fighting to seat themselves in the lowest place of uh, honour, as far away as possible from the top table. That's the logic of what Jesus is saying here. Now, Ben is going to be a best man at that wedding. And when uh, our friend Angus sees Ben there at the opposite end from the uh, top table, he should uh, say, according to this, Ben, come up higher, friend. And Ben should presumably, according to this story, roll his eyes and say, oh, shucks, little old me. The story, on one level, is told to avoid our being implicated in a scramble for the top table, only to be told, uh, or for fear of being told, to go and sit uh, by the swing doors through to the kitchen. 
Now, that's the, the logic of the story as it's set out. Uh, but we, we often take the stories of Jesus and think, oh, it's Jesus. It must, all be, it must all be the way things are meant to be. And we forget the stories of Jesus that he tells about the way things are not meant to be. Uh, he, he talks about the nagging woman who brings her case before the judge. And she says, if that happens now, then how much more will God... Dot, dot, dot. It's not meant to be like the nagging woman. Or the, think of the, the unjust steward who is told to go and scratch out the outrageous claims of interest he's made to write down all the debts of the debtors and to uh, make some kind of uh, money for his boss uh, as best he can. Jesus isn't saying you need to go out and manage your finances in that way. It's not a story about the way things happen. It's one of those, that's what happens already, now learn something from it. Similarly, here, this is a scenario. Now learn something from it. Jesus is not trying to be nice here, to convey a picture of himself as uh, I'm the nice guy who tells everyone to come up, hire a friend. That's not his point. He's simply happy to come out of this, having looked at what they're doing, he's happy to come out of this cleverer in order to put down the Pharisees who exalt themselves. He is acting out what he says in verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He's happy to see it as a contest. Pharisees nil, Jesus won. Then he goes on, and there's no more games now. The third element is not a story, it's simply a, an instruction from verse 12 through to verse 14. It's not, it's not insignificant that Jesus says when you give a luncheon or dinner, because t- we, we have a, a culture of sharing food that they didn't have. It was about when you give a luncheon or dinner. To give a luncheon or dinner is a gift-giving process. So when you gave it, you would have an eye immediately to who you would be inviting. You would be calculating, if I invite them, if I invite Rebecca and David and Sam and Mike, then when they invite me, I will end up looking good because they're higher up the social ladder than I am. That was your calculation. And it wasn't wicked. It was simply the way things go. Who you invited defines who you are. A feast is a gift, and it runs by the rules of gift. And it's not that long ago that we gave up on, if it feels like a foreign world, it's not that long ago that we gave up on that. It is said that the 19th century saw an edition of Debrett's Guide to the Aristocracy in which there appeared this line in the section devoted to how to seat people at dinner. Should you have invited the Aga Khan to dinner, be aware that he is held to be a direct descendant of God. An English duke takes precedence. 
The point was always to be invited back and to be honoured. Because when you were invited back and, and you were sat up the ladder, then everyone knew who you were. Jesus is criticising the entire ladder of status that leaves God out. He has already established within this meal that he's the top dog. He's cleverer than the other guys. But he's done it only in order to show that it's unimportant relative to God's stuff. And it's at the very end that we get the God stuff. When we were praying um, at the, uh, uh, in the vestry earlier, uh, Will uh, was praying uh, and saying, uh, kindly praying that this sermon should not be a rant. Uh, because, I don't know, you can tell me afterwards whether it was or wasn't around. But, but I know what he means, because he said that it's so easy when you get the ethical stuff in Jesus about who you invite to dinner and what your status is and all that sort of thing. Just to go off on one as the vicar and to kind of rant at your congregation. But happily, there is God stuff here, and it comes at the very end, and it's that that rescues us from the rant. If God can give in his generosity of spirit without regard to human honour, then so must we. What did Luke 4, what was Luke 4 about? It was about reversal. The spirit of the Lord is upon me to reverse everything. What is the promise of the angel in Luke's gospel to Mary who is going to bear Jesus? That the one who comes will be the one who puts down the mighty from their seat and lifts up the humble and meek. There will be the reversal. And so what this is about is a, a requirement laid upon us because of how God works, that we should practice, that we should act out the great reversal. If you look at verse 11, the Pharisees actually had a saying they said, in my humiliation is my exaltation, in my exaltation is my humiliation. But Jesus has put time into it. For everyone who now exalts himself will be humbled. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Act out the great reversal. Luke would say, and mean, this is why it is about dinner. Go to the lowly when you're asking people for a meal, for some hospitality or some kind of time together. Seek them out. Humble yourself. But it's also about more than dinners. Act out. Practice the great reversal. I was thinking, what, about, what do you do about this business of the seat and higher seats and lower seats? Well, I thought, well, just as a practicality, one of the things it's about is the boundaries of our in-group. The Pharisees were quite happy with their boundaries, and within that, they stayed and they kind of knew all the rules. But Jesus is inviting us to act out the great reversal and to break the boundaries. So I, I commend those of you, and I know some of you who do it. I can think of at least two people who've done it tonight. Why not sit in a different seat next week? Break the boundaries of who's sitting next to you or near you. Talk to someone different. It doesn't have to be higher or lower, this stuff. 
It can just be around breaking the boundaries of the in-group. If we have ten good reasons why we, if it comes to running an alpha course or something similar, if we've got ten reasons why we could, of course, you know, it's a great thing that you're doing it, but, of course, I couldn't bring my ten friends, I couldn't bring my friends to that, then I think Jesus is saying, change your friends. Change the boundaries of your in-group so that the kingdom of God can matter, because it's clearly not mattering to the ones that are in your in-group now. And finally, this is not such a big deal for uh, the times of Jesus, but I think it matters hugely in our own time, because we see so much damage in our own culture from those who do not know who they are, whose sense of self-image is doubtful. Act out the great reversal, practice the great reversal, Do not rely on others for your image. If uh, if I relied on others, I would go and get a bright red uh, running suit and I would look like a tomato. Um, But I'm not going to do that. I'd rather look stupid in a different way. But I am not going to rely on others to give me a sense of my image. Humble, as in verse 11. It does not mean, well, I've got to knock myself down and be a, somehow be a bit pathetic. What it means is to have a sober and proper estimate of who you are, but based on God's estimate of you and not on what other people might think. When Jesus brings the God stuff in to uh, verse 14, though they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. He's choosing to make a particular kind of statement. For the Pharisees, the past is their yardstick. The past where the law was laid down, the past where they got to be born uh, and raised a Pharisee. But Jesus is pointing out that here, the future is the yardstick. The resurrection of the righteous is coming. And it's at the resurrection of, your, of the righteous that you will learn that it would have been a better idea if you'd acted out more of the great reversal. But that's hard. The past is what we've experienced. And the future is a matter for faith. We've all got a past. We've all been born in a certain family, raised in a certain way. We can all look to a certain way of doing things. But the challenge Jesus lays before us is to take our cue from the resurrection, from the truths of Jesus Christ himself. Of course, if we only had his word for it, we'd find the whole story a bit laughable. But this is a man who told the story and then went to a cross to act out the great reversal so that by his resurrection and the promise of resurrection of the righteous, the truth of that verse might become known to us. It turns out to be about staking your life on God's decision about you and staking that life so clearly that you become a person secure in what God will say about you. And out of that security you enter into the great reversal, making everything different for those around you. Can we pray together? 
why don't you take a moment just to recognize before, your, before God, and I'll, I'll leave a minute or so, areas of your life where you are inclined to take the measure of your status from those around you, above you or below you on the ladder that's important to you. Lord God, we live in a world of common sense. And by the standards of common sense, the Pharisees have got it right. They know which side their bread is buttered. They see things the way most of the world sees it. And it makes sense. Indeed, only if there is a resurrection to come, only if there is a final reversal in history, can we say that what they do, what they are like, does not make sense? We know that it is hard, it is sometimes so hard to live by faith in a resurrection we have not yet seen, though we may believe it for the one case of Jesus Christ. So strengthen our faith that a man who taught what is nonsense if there's no resurrection, but then backed it with his own story of death and resurrection. Give us a confidence in him. And by that confidence, let us live lives that are different from the common sense that infects the world around us and is wrong.